Good morning. morning. Welcome. You made it despite the rain. Imagine that. What we do for God. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene. I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. And I wonder, is there anyone else here who's been blocked on social media? Take face definitely. Take Facebook, for example, right? So most of us understand Facebook. I know the kids have been chased away from there. They're on the Instatalk or something. You old people can't find them anymore. That's a good thing. So the Facebook. So I'll tell you some ways that you can find out if you've been blocked or not. First of all, there you have the search bar there. If you type the person's name that you suspect blocked you, they don't show up. You know you've been blocked. But be very careful about using this method because the search bar is dangerously close to the what's on your mind bar. Yeah, <laughs> they'll know you're looking for them, or maybe not because they blocked you, they don't care. Here's another way you may accidentally find out that you've been blocked. Maybe let's say, I don't know, a mutual friend posts a picture of their birthday or something like that, some food. You want to say something nice, so you go to the comments section. But then you notice it looks like that mutual friend is talking to themselves. Then you know you've been blocked, and you may want to check with a friend or a spouse. Hey, does it look like so-and-so is talking to themselves? No, you've been blocked. So I heard a story about two now elderly women, sisters. They didn't really get along very well throughout their lives. It all started when they got married. The older sister married a Reformed Christian believer. So this is very, very strict. In fact, in their worship, they didn't even have an organ. They had no instruments in the worship at all, a cappella singing to psalms or hymns. The younger sister, well, she married a Pentecostal believer. And aside from the snakes, it was pretty exciting. They had a full band, they really got into the worship there, it was kind of loud. And so they were always arguing, this is where the legit worship is, over here at my church. No, 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 if you want true worship, it's over here at my church. So they'd argue on and on. This problem got worse with social media, because then they started passive-aggressively posting things about the worship, you know, being really good Christians. Well, then it got even worse with the politics. Horrible. One was on one side of the aisle, the other's on the other side of the aisle. So just more and more and more stuff. Their Christianity is eroding for all to see. So finally, the older sister, being, of course, the more mature one, decided to block her sister. So she does. Then one day, the younger sister is scrolling through the Facebook, and she comes upon a picture posted by her niece, that is the older sister's daughter. Her birthday. She's out with her friends, takes a selfie. She goes, oh, that's nice. Let me say happy birthday and put some more clothes on. So <laughs> she looks down at the other comments, see who else is posting, and it looks like her niece is talking to herself. She goes to her husband. Does it look like? He's like, no. That's kind of interesting. So she messages her niece, hey, looks like your mom blocked me. That's not very nice. Tell her to undo that. 
Okay, well, we'll won't do that. Goes to the mother. Hey, mom, that's not very nice. You blocked your younger sister. Undo that. No, I'm not going to do it. No way. Okay, this goes on for a few days. Finally, her daughter, the niece, decides, I got it. I'll appeal to her Christianity. Hey, mom, what would Jesus do? Thinks for a minute, and she says, he'd unblock her. Thinks for another minute and says, but he'd be wrong. (laughs) Yes. Today we find ourselves in the rest of the story. This is where we're looking at the entire Bible, all of it, every word. We're not skipping any accounts, even the unpopular, uncomfortable ones. We looked at Basha and Asa. So to fill you in, if you're arriving here new, most of you, even if you've never read the Bible, know about King David. You know about him. You may know about Solomon. Well, you may know Solomon was said to have been the wisest and wealthiest man ever. But we see he broke a lot of rules. So his son, Rehoboam, during his time, the kingdom is going to split now. So you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Jeroboam becomes the king. And now we're looking at all these successive kings and trying to learn lessons from the many mistakes that they make. Last week, we read about King Basia and Asa. We've got parallel accounts. If you don't know anything about the Bible, it's not just one book. It is many different books, and some of them account for the same exact thing, except They give us differences, not contradictions, just different little things, details in there. So today, we are going to focus on 1 Kings. We're going to see that 1 Kings concerns itself more with Israel in the north for a while. Then we'll get back to 2 Chronicles, where they'll come back together again. So we learned about Baasha last week. Asa used another king from another country, Ben-Hadad, to run him off. This was a sign of his lack of faith in the Lord. 1 Kings 15, we're just going to jump back a little bit, recap, 32, there was constant war between King Asa of Judah and King Baasha of Israel. Baasha, son of Ahijah, began to rule over all Israel in the third year of King Asa's reign in Judah. Baasha reigned in Terza 24 years, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the example of Jeroboam, continuing the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. Now, if we turn the page... Remember Hanani, what he said to Asa regarding how he handled King Baasha of Israel, trusting in Ben-Hadad instead of God. Now his son Jehu has a message for King Baasha of Israel. 1 Kings 16.1, this message from the Lord was delivered to King Baasha by the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani. I lifted you out of the dust to make you ruler of my people Israel, but you have followed the evil example of Jeroboam. You have provoked my anger by causing my people Israel to sin. Now I will destroy you and your family, just as I destroyed the descendants of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The members of Baasha's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. The rest of the events in Baasha's reign and the extent of his power are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. When Baasha died, he was buried in Terza. Then his son Elah became the next king. So we see in this split, or what we're going to see in this split, is that the kings in the north of Israel are going to be succeeded by murder, not through a family line any longer. Baasha dies. 
his son Elah, 1 Kings 16.8. Elah, the son of Baasha, began to rule over Israel in the 26th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in the city of Terzah for two years. Then Zimri, who commanded half of the royal chariots, made plans to kill him. One day in Terzah, Elah was getting drunk at the home of Arza, the supervisor of the palace. Zimri walked in and struck him down and killed him. This happened in the 27th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. Then Zimri became the next king. What's the lesson there? Don't get drunk. <laughs> you could die. <laughs> so again, we hear a series of successions through murder. Zimri, he kills the entire family of Baasha, all his heirs, the whole family. And this is a fulfillment of that prophecy Jehu gave him. But here's the thing. He only makes it seven days. That's it. Israel hears what Zimri does, so they send Omri the commander of the army, to straighten everything out. When Zimri's defeated at Terzah, he enters the citadel of the palace. He burns it down on himself and kills himself. Ends his reign. 1 Kings 16, 21. But now the people of Israel were split into two factions. There's already a civil war. Now you've got another one here in the north. Half the people tried to make Tibni, son of Guinness, their king, while the other half supported Omri. This is the military commander. But Omri's supporters defeated the supporters of Tibni, so Tibni was killed, and Omri became the next king. Omri began to rule over Israel in the 31st year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned 12 years in all, six of them in Terza. Then Omri bought the hill, now known as Samaria, from its owner Shemer for 150 pounds of silver. He built a city on it and called the city Samaria in honor of Shemer. So he has an immediate civil war here. He snuffs it out. He begins to reign. We discuss capital cities throughout this series. First, we have Shechem, then Terzah, and now we see Samaria. It keeps changing, so it gets a little confusing. But we're going to stop here on Samaria. This is an extremely, extremely significant site. It is the capital and the place of worship for those in the north, Israel, like Jerusalem is in Judah, important to them in the south. By understanding how these stories work, we're going to understand what Jesus is saying a lot better. So we're kind of going to pump the brakes a little here and just try to understand a little bit more about Samaria. First, background on Omri. Omri's interesting. There's a very, very short blurb written about him. But he's one of the few Israelite kings that other people outside the Bible write about during that time, like the Moabites and the Assyrians. He's a really powerful military commander with a really big army. Now, as we read on, we see that he commits sins like the other kings before him, but he's the father of Ahab. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know who Ahab is, real wicked guy. He's going to be the father-in-law of Jezebel. Probably even heard that name if you've never read the Bible. Don't name your daughter Jezebel. I'm so sorry if anyone here is named Jezebel. <laughs> read your Bible before you name your kids, right? So like Judas, bad name. So Jezebel, she introduces the worship of Baal. Baal or Baal, I just say Baal for short. It's no bueno. It's not a good thing. So he's associated with some really bad stuff here. Now, the Samaritans, they come from this region. What's going to happen if we fast forward? They're going to get conquered by the Assyrians. So they're going to fall first. Some of them 
get held captive by the Assyrians, some stay. And it's really bad. They mix in with the people there. So the thing about Jews is that they're both a race and a religion. Think of it like that. So so are the Samaritans. They end up mixing in with the people there. They adopt their worship practices, and they even get attacked by lions. It's going to get very interesting in the series. So these are the Samaritans. Samaritans today, there's only a few hundred of them, and they claim that they are Israelite descendants from the northern Israelite tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, who survived this destruction of Israel. So they're in line with that. Their worship's different. They worship on Mount Gerizim. So if you know anything about the Bible, you remember where we were in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses, Deuteronomy 27, 28. So Gerizim is where they pronounced all these blessings, Ebal, the curses. So that's where they worship. Also, the Bible. They only accept the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all they believe. The Jews of Jesus' day, they disliked the Samaritans because of their religious beliefs and their mixed racial heritage. In fact, the temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim was destroyed, 129 BC, so before Jesus. So there's a lot of hostility between these two groups. The Jews, again, they're an ethno-religious group is what it's called. The Samaritans then mix in with the other nations and it becomes both a religious and a racial issue. The Samaritans are seen by the Jews as half-breeds. In fact, Jesus in John 8 is called a Samaritan dog by the Jewish people. Of course, we know he's not. They're trying to insult him. So a very bad thing to be a Samaritan at this time in the Jewish mind. Now, understanding this will help to understand a lot of what's going on in the New Testament, like the story that many of you probably know, the woman at the well. That is in John Four. A lot of you know this story. You know the bulk of it, what it's really all about, worshiping in spirit and in truth, living water, right? So you think of those things. But it's end-capped by a couple of things, and at the end, it actually doubles the statements about it. A lot of people don't notice it, or they just don't keep reading. So here we have Jesus. He's traveling along, and he passes by this through or through these Samaritan towns, one of them is Sychar, and he sees Jacob's well there. He's tired, it says, from all the traveling, so he's going to rest there. Enter a Samaritan woman. He says, give me a drink. Now, she's puzzled because she knows Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. So she says, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. What's going on here? He says, oh, if you knew the gift God had for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me for water, and I'd give you living water. She's confused. She's like, dude, you don't have a bucket or a rope. How are you going to get water? Plus, you think your water is better than Jacob's well here? She doesn't understand. He said, no. The kind of water that I have, this living water, leads to eternal life. She says, ooh, give me some of that water. Now she wants it. She's starting to get it, maybe. He says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband, she says. Ah, you are correct. For you've had, in the Greek, it's just one word for husband and man, you've had five men, and you're not even married to the one you're living with now. Basically, you're sleeping around. She's promiscuous. So she says, you must be a prophet. 
So then tell me, why is it that the Jews say that the true worship is in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say it's here on Mount Gerizim? He says, the time is coming. It's even here that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything that is the Christ. He says, I am the Messiah. Well, she takes off. Just then the disciples arrive. They have a little dialogue there, planting and reaping the harvest. But if you pay attention, it says she goes to the Samaritan town and tells everybody, can this guy be the Messiah? Basically, he knows what I did. He knows about my life. And so they flock out to see him, dialogue with his disciples. But then it says that a whole bunch of Samaritans became Christians. They became followers of Jesus. So we understand how this teaching is bookended by the Samaritans, and it's meant to flip the whole thing. You're not doing that anymore. There's none of this in Christ any longer. True worship is worship in truth and in spirit. No more of these religious divides any longer. It also helps us understand some things in Luke. Luke 9, they're traveling along again. They're going to pass by a Samaritan town. So they send messengers ahead to basically welcome Jesus, but they don't welcome him. They know he's going to Jerusalem, to the temple. And so they're not going to help him go travel to worship or anything like that. So James and John hear about it, and they ask Jesus, Lord, can we send fire down from heaven to burn them up? Jesus rebukes them. Now, if you know the word well, you know just a little while. We're going to have an account with Elijah. And so it sounds a lot like that. In fact, some versions add that, like Elijah did. If we turn the page, the parable of the good Samaritan. A lot of you know this. We know this phrase in our culture, right? But a lot of people don't know that it begins with a question. It's the response to a question he's asked by a scribe or like basically like a religious lawyer. Think of it that way. He's going to try to trap Jesus or something or test him. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the law of Moses. How do you read it? He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've said it. You got it right. That's good. But now, now remember, he's a Jewish religious scribe. He knows he doesn't really want to do it. He doesn't want to love his neighbor. Not going to do that. So he tries to ask him another question. Do we do this? Who is my neighbor, though? Really, there's some humor here. Who is my neighbor? So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you the long answer. So he tells him this parable. There was a Jewish man. He's beaten up, mugged, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. Well, along comes a priest. He sees him there, fellow Jew. So the Jewish priest, Jewish man on the side of the road. Instead of helping him, he goes to the other side of the road and just pretends he doesn't see it. In comes a Levite walking down the road, basically like a temple assistant, temple worker. Also Jewish, supposed to be a very religious person. Sees him, doesn't do anything to help him. Well, enter in. The despised Samaritans. This is Jesus telling the story. He sees him. Well, he, he, he helps him. He bandages up his wounds. He puts oil on him. He's healing him up. He puts him on his own donkey. He brings him to the inn. Not only does he put him up and help him there, but the next day he tells the innkeeper, here's two days' pay, two denarii. It's basically 
two days' pay. Here you go. If he needs anything else, I'll come back and I'll pay you more. Jesus asked them, who was the neighbor? They said, the one who showed mercy. You go and do the same. So you understand, he places the Samaritan there to give it a lot of force. If we keep reading, it goes on. Luke 17, 10 lepers are healed. Right, so from a distance, and now they're supposed to, according to the law of Moses, Leviticus 13, 14, kind of gross stuff about treating leprosy and boils and all kinds of disgusting things. So they think they're going to do that. Go, you know, pay the priest, that kind of thing, do your ritual. On the way there, whoa, we're healed. Jesus did it. But only one of them comes back to thank him, the Samaritan. It's the only one that comes back to thank him. He's like, I thought there were 10 of you. Where are the other nine? It's meant to teach a lesson. Placing these Samaritans in the parable or the accounts, it gives it more force. You who say, it's woven throughout so many of Jesus' teaching, hypocrites. You who say you're getting this religion right, calling yourself something, are you? Or are the people not calling themselves this, doing what you're supposed to be doing better than you are? That's the force of Jesus' teaching. And so if we stop here and understand Samaria, Samaritans, we get it. Jesus is rebuking social divisions, racial divisions, and religious divisions of all kinds. But unfortunately, many Christians still have this problem today. This is very pertinent. You can put the parable of the Good Samaritan in a modern light. Christian left for dead on the side of the road. People are just passing by. A pastor walks along, notices him, and says, that's not convenient. I'm going to walk along. A worship leader sees him. That's not, i got to practice my guitar. I'll do something else. But then a Muslim comes along. He sees the man, bandages him up, puts him in the back of his car, takes him to a hotel, gives the guy the credit card, the manager of the hotel, says, anything he needs, you just charge it to my card. Who is the good neighbor? Same thing. <laughs> you can apply it to politics, right? Republican, left for dead on the side of the road. Don't laugh, Democrats. <laughs> Left her down on the side. Republican comes along, sees him, doesn't do anything to help him. <laughs> a right-leaning independent comes along, doesn't do anything. But then the Democrat comes along and bandages him up. Who had it right? See, it doesn't matter if your argument is right or not, if you're not doing the will of the Father, if you're not getting it right. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves if we're not doing it. That is what Jesus says over and over and over again. Matthew 7, 12 is a remarkable, if you don't know, it's toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Treating others the way you want to be treated is, is the law and the prophets. Do you think about what a powerful statement that is. Treating others the way you want to be treated is, that's what it says in Greek, is the law and the prophets. Remarkable statement. Do it. Loving your neighbor 
That summarizes the whole thing. Paul repeats that in Romans 12. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your Republican neighbor. Love your Democrat neighbor. Love your Muslim neighbor. Love each other. But here's the thing. Loving people with different opinions, that's how you win them over. We're supposed to be Christians above everything else. No other affiliation should be above that. In fact, it should all be way down here. Christians, in our mission, all of us, not just pastors, is to spread the gospel. How do you do that? Through love. That's what Jesus says. Show them love, regardless of their opinions somewhere else. Then they'll listen to you. People listen to other people when they know they care. Oh, you care about me. Okay, I'll give you some time. That's the key. Here's the thing. We should be really asking ourselves a question. Why would we want to hate anyone anyway? Think about it. It doesn't feel very good. I don't like being angry all the time. Why would we want to? Why would we want to be prejudiced against anyone else? The Holy Spirit should clean us of that. That should be gone. There should be zero desire to hate anyone. If we have God in us, how is that possible? Interesting. Now, here's the thing. In Jesus' ministry in the flesh, he says something. But you need to keep reading. If you're new here, that's a big thing. Don't make some kind of theological statement if you haven't read the whole thing. Careful. Because it clears it up. It's kind of like not watching the end of a movie. Imagine doing that. You, you watch like half of it. And then you think you know the whole thing. You've got to come to the conclusion. And sometimes things are cleared up. And this is what happens, let's say, in the Gospel of Matthew, but throughout the whole Bible. Matthew 10. He's going to send his 12 disciples out. And he's going to give them instructions. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel, he says, right? So the Jewish people. Don't go to the Gentiles or even in a Samaritan town. Don't do that. Now, you might think, ah, see, Jesus only wants the Jews to be saved. He doesn't care about anyone else. But if you keep reading, he clarifies Matthew 28, verse 19. Now, go therefore to all the nations. And this is pretty interesting because in the Greek, something will come to your mind, especially if you're an English-speaking person, first read it in the English versions, then you read it in Greek. And when you learn Greek, you know that sometimes one word can mean several different things. And so you have to translate it based on context. So go therefore, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nations, ethne, or a form of it in Greek. When I see that word, it makes me think people, Gentiles, or nations. And nations is a good translation. They're about to go somewhere. That's fine. Even in Acts 1, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But in my mind, it also makes me think, go to peoples. And here's the thing. The NLT, for as an easy reading translation as it is, it catches this. It gives you a little asterisk. And if you go to the bottom of the page, it says nations or peoples. They get it. 
You're supposed to be going down. All these ethnic walls, think of it as ethnicity, ethnic, they're gone. There's no one that this living water isn't for. It's for everyone. All ethnicities. But even before that, we see something kind of interesting. We see that Philip is an early advocate for other races. John 12, 20, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. We see Philip again in Acts 8, for example. So the believers, they're kind of huddled up in Jerusalem, like a waterfall of the Holy Spirit. They're huddled up in Jerusalem, and they're kind of becoming, it says they're adding thousands to their numbers, but they're kind of becoming like the megachurches today. They're just stacking up, not doing very much in one place. So it says that a great wave of persecution comes over them and scatters them everywhere. Interesting. Now, a side note for you guys. Do you know that people in other countries are praying for us? Do you know what they're praying for? They're praying that we get persecuted. There are actually, this blew my mind. I'm going to try to work on it and have one of these individuals come here. They say, people from other countries, they have people who are sent here <laughs> to tell us how to do it right. They send people here. And they complain. They say, ministry, missions in America is really expensive. <laughs> they send people here because the church has turned to commercialism. We've become extremely complacent in commercialism. Okay, Sunday, check, done. That's it. Wrong. And it's crazy. The things people ask me for to do in this church, I'm like, I really just want to shut it all down sometimes. So just to know, they pray that we get persecuted so that we take it seriously, so that we start praying, actually. We start relying on God. Good note. Acts 8.4, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I talked to some of my friends who are from other places, other countries where they don't have so much. You know what they say? They're seeing that stuff happen like crazy. Miracles. I guess maybe they're not so distracted. So here's the thing. Peter and John, pillars of the church, they go to Samaria to verify this ministry, to validate it. They pray for them there. They baptize them in the Holy Spirit, and they start seeing amazing things. On the way back to Jerusalem, they go through Samaritan towns and convert people. It's incredible. This is really significant. Next to the Jews, they're the first converts to Christianity. Check this out, Acts 8, 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go down south the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go to the carriage. 
What are you reading? Do you understand it? How can I understand without a teacher, he says. So Philip proceeds to teach the eunuch from the book of Isaiah, Jesus. He shows him Jesus. They pass by a body of water, and he says, I want to get baptized. Awesome. Let's do it. He baptizes him. So think about this for a second. The first fully Gentile Christian is black. Very significant. Talk about cultural breakdowns. Later in Acts 13, we see a black man, Simeon, but he's nicknamed Niger. He's called the black man in the church at Antioch of Syria. There's five prominent leaders there. Paul and Silas are among them. They're sent out by the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. They're actually told not to go certain places, to go certain They're listening and totally in line and obedient with God. None of their own ideas. They're traveling around. Now, they get to Antioch of Pisidia. And they decide, this is interesting, to leave the Jews. So Paul has this custom of going to the synagogue first in every single town. That's what he does. They're receiving it pretty well at first. He gives a big, long sermon. But then the next week, something happens. They turn against him. And so this is what Paul says, Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we were all for it to the ethne, the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the same word there, Gentiles, ethne, to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. Later on, Paul makes a very interesting comment. He's now in Athens on Mars Hill. He's about to talk to some philosophers who are going to debate with him. He says they like to just debate about every little thing there. So what's Paul going to do? Does he put his argument cap on? Is he going to fight with them? No. He's really smart. So he notices a little inscription that says, to an unknown god on one of their altars. Ah. I'm going to bring this with me to the argument. And instead of fighting with them, he says, you know, I noticed that you guys are some pretty religious people. Compliments them. You know, I saw an inscription, unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. Acts 17, 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, some versions say blood, he created all the nations, ethnos there, same word, throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. From one man, he created all ethnicities, the word of God says. We are all brothers and sisters, all of us, and especially, especially if we are in Christ. 1 John 2, 9, if anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates his brother, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves his brother is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble, but anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. How can someone say 
they love God, but hate their brother. Galatians 3.26, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. There are no longer ethnicities in Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus, if we are truly in him. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for everyone, despite the weather, who came to church today to be an active part of the body of Christ and the unity of the Holy Spirit. We thank you. I thank you for each one of these individuals. May you soften their hearts if they're hard so that they can really receive the Holy Spirit. And by his direction, his power, they can become vehicles of love to deliver the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.